You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, good morning to all of you. I'm so glad you're here um, to join me in studying 1 John. This is our second lesson in 1 John, but if you weren't here last week, don't worry. I always do a little summary of what I did, and you haven't missed much. But let's begin with prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, Lord, for the way in which you are the word made flesh, and all of scripture points to you. And so we ask now that you would open the eyes of our hearts to your great love for us once again, uh, as reminded by us um, from your servant, your beloved servant, your beloved disciple, John. And so we ask this for your glory's sake and for the benefit of your people and for the benefit of this broken world that needs your love so desperately. And we ask this in your name once again. Amen. Well, good morning. And if you were with me last week, um, we talked a little bit about um, who this letter is written by. It's written by the apostle, the evangelist John, likely written um, to people in Asia Minor at first and foremost likely to the church in Ephesus, which is what church tradition tells us about where John ended up towards the end of his life, likely towards the um, last three three decades of the first century. And um, it, as was common, any church that got one of these wonderful apostolic letters, they would then circulate the letter to the other churches around them. And so it's likely that John was intentionally writing not just to the church in Ephesus, but to many of the other churches around him. Just like we know the, um, the, apocalypse, the apocalypse, the revelation, John's revelation is written intentionally, not just to Ephesus, but to the seven churches in Asia Minor. So it might be that this is also written to the seven churches in Asia Minor. There's no way of really knowing for sure, though, because the letter itself doesn't contain that usual greeting of so-and-so to so-and-so. But church tradition would suggest that. And one of the amazing things about John, John the evangelist, John um, the gospel writer, John the disciple, John the beloved disciple, who was one of the inner circle of Jesus' disciples, he was not just one of the twelve, but he was also one of the three, James and Peter and John, who got to go up on Mount of Transfiguration, who got to be closer to Jesus and brought into um, some of the um, more intimate things that he was doing. Well, John says, and we saw last week that John says that he is an eyewitness to the word of life. He was an eyewitness to Jesus, that eternal word, that first, um, that second person of the Trinity who existed before being born as a baby in Bethlehem, who existed before creation, um, who is fully God. And he talks about Jesus being born. He doesn't say being born, but Jesus coming. And he, as one of the eyewitnesses, Uh, about this word of life. He got to see Jesus. He got to hear from Jesus. He even touched Jesus. Um, He talks about the word, the second person of the Trinity, being so tangible and so palpable. And so as John is telling the truth about Jesus, he is placing himself as an eyewitness. And eyewitnesses are important. We think about eyewitnesses in a court of law. And indeed, in the Jewish mindset, um, they had this rule that only um, a testimony in court would only be um, valid if there were at least two witnesses about the event that had happened. And so um, John is standing in the tradition, that tradition of that rule, that law in the Old Testament, of telling the truth about Jesus, of being one of those eyewitnesses to tell the truth. And as we talked about last week, he then encourages and 
calls upon Christians in general to be ones who also tell the truth. As Christians, one of our identifying um, uh, factors, one of the things that uh, epitomizes who we are as Christians is that we are called to tell the truth. And we're called to tell the truth about Jesus, about who he is and what he's done for us. And we're called to tell the truth about ourselves. And we talked about this last week. And so Christians tell the truth about Jesus. And John, in his letter, um, has said, and I talked about this last week, that he says part of this truth about Jesus involves, number one, saying that he is fully God. He is equal to God the Father. He, is, um, can, he possesses all of the divine attributes. Come on in. Thanks for being here. So Jesus is fully God, and Jesus is also fully human, fully man. And he says um, in this letter, he says, anyone who denies either one of these truths about Jesus that are to be held equally and fully, is anyone who denies those truths um, is, is not of the truth, is a liar, is not um, following Jesus. And then he goes on to also talk about Jesus, what it means that Jesus is our Savior, who he is and what he's done for us. As our Savior, he is our advocate and he is our propitiation. And John uses those two words to talk about our salvation. Number one, that Jesus is like our defense attorney. And number two, that Jesus is um, not only like our defense attorney or even our high priest going in to intercede on our behalf, but he is the actual offering himself. He himself gives up his life as a propitiation, um, an offering that not only would atone for our guilt and cleanse us from sin, but also an offering that turns away the wrath of God. And so in terms of being Christians as truth-tellers, telling the truth about Jesus, we're also called to tell the truth about ourselves. We are sinners in need of a Savior. Um, And John talks about this so clearly in his letter, and we looked at that last week. We also looked at what it meant to be a Christian, that as a Christian, we are ones, and John uses this phrase again and again, we are ones who walk in the light. As disciples, we literally follow Jesus literally walking in his footsteps. And I think about um, Jesus' first call upon Peter. Um, Remember, he was there, and he called to him, and he said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And Mark and Matthew and Luke tell us that um, the disciples dropped their nets right there in the boat, got up, and followed Jesus, went with him, followed him to his next destination, as we find out, followed him all around Galilee, followed him all the way to Jerusalem. They literally were following Jesus um, to his destinations. But there's a second way in which, as disciples, we follow Jesus. And we hear this in Jesus' words again and again throughout the Gospels. Jesus says to his disciples, um, take up your cross and follow me. That part of being a disciple means not just following Jesus to his destination, but it involves this kind of following that uh, is characterized by imitation. We are to imitate Jesus. He is the example for how to live. And we are called as disciples to be learners, ones who learn from Jesus. And that's where the actual word disciple in the Greek literally means learner. Just think of mathematics. And it is, we are learners, ones who are learning from Jesus' example. And I love this because there's one example that I use a lot, so forgive me if you've heard me use it again. And it comes from um, a silly old movie um, called Young Frankenstein. And if you have seen it, then you know that Gene Wilder is a comedic genius. And Gene Wilder is met at the doorway of the mad scientist by a hunchback, right, Igor. And Igor tells him after he opens the door, he says, very soberly, of course, walk this way. you know. And so then uh, Gene Wilder is going to follow him to the destination, to the room where he'll wait 
to meet with whoever he's meeting with. And um, Gene Wilder, being uh, such a wise, wise guy, he not only follows him, follows in his footsteps, but he then also starts to imitate him by walking with a, a hump, so to speak. And I think about that a lot because I think about that in the way that we are called to follow Jesus where he's going and we're also literally called to imitate him called to walk this way and again walking in the way of walking or the way of behaving is um, a phrase that the Jewish people use to understand their law literally halakha the law in Hebrew was considered to be the way of walking or the way of behaving so whenever in the New Testament you see this language of walking just think for those first Jewish Jewish Christians when they heard that they said okay this is how I'm supposed to behave they literally would translate that into behavioral um, uh, lessons um, and instructions on how to live and so we talked last week about different things that um, Oh, forgive me, I've had you looking at that screen for a while. We already talked about that. We're Christians who are truth-tellers. We're Christians who walk in the light. As Christians, walking, as, um, Christians walking in the light involves, first of all, believing in Jesus. Um, second of all, receiving forgiveness and cleansing from sin. Uh, and telling the truth about Jesus, which is not up there, but that's what we've already talked about. Walking in the light also involves, as a benefit, involves having fellowship with the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And there's that vertical fellowship that then spills out into a horizontal fellowship, fellowship with other Christians who are also having fellowship with the triune God. And so there's that vertical and that horizontal component. And we're going to talk some more about that today. And then these other two things we're going to talk about today, and these are all certainly, um, there are more things involved in being a Christian than just these, and yet these are the ones that John is focusing on in his letter. Um, so these last two things, uh, specifically walking in the light, John is going to say again and again, involves obeying the commandments or keeping the commandments. And it especially involves, he'll go on to say it involves loving one's brother. Um, those two aspects of walking in the light involve living in the truth or practicing the truth. And that's where John uses this word truth. We think of telling the truth, and I've talked about telling the truth. But he, the literal phrasing that he used is doing the truth. Those who do the truth are the ones who keep the commandments are the ones who live out love for their brothers and sisters horizontally out of having received the love of God vertically. Okay, so one last thing, just a little bit of the how, and we talked about this last week, and it's going to be important because it'll help you understand why I'm jumping around as much as I do. Um, And that is because John's letter, John does not write the way a lot of people, especially today in our postmodern or our modernist thinking world, write. He does not write one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, a, B, C, D. He is a non-linear thinker and a non-linear writer, and I appreciate this about him. And so rather than just going in a straight line, it's as though John is writing in a spiral. And some people have said that it's like he's um, writing a symphony, just the way Mozart would write music, that he introduces a theme, and then he'll talk about another theme, and then he'll go back to that first theme, and he'll reintroduce it, but he'll add extra material to it. He'll tweak it in just a little bit of a way. He'll make it even more beautiful that next time that he says it. And so then when it circles back around, he's going to do the same thing again and again and again. And so that's one thing I want you to keep your eyes out 
um, open for. Because as we read through a couple of these passages about love in John's, uh, John's letter, you're going to see there's some repetition and then there's also new information that's repeated. So let's look first. Um, we're, um, we're picking up in chapter two where we left off last week. And um, I'm gonna, does someone want to read this who can see it well enough? It is, um, I know. Okay, go ahead, Scott. Thank you, love. Yeah. And by this we know that we have come to know him. We keep his commandments. Oh, yeah, you can do the whole thing. Yeah. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Does anybody, not just Scott, but anybody else also, Scott, feel free to answer. Anybody else see anything in this short um, set of verses? that echoes what I've just said um, by way of introduction. Do you hear some of the language, some of the themes repeated here? Anything? You see where he talks about walking in verse 6? Whoever says he abides in God ought to walk in the same way in which he, yes, God, but also Jesus Christ specifically walked. Do you hear that? Walk this way. Walk in following Jesus and imitating him. And imitating him involves keeping his word, keeping his commandments, um, loving others. And here's this introduction of the love of God. And we're, we're going to um, see more of this love brought up in the following verses. Um, so this keeping God's commandments is an important aspect of walking in the way. Um, and even this truth, do you hear this? Um, the truth is not in him. If someone does not keep the commandments of God, you hear how truth here is not just a verbal assent, but it's actual, actually a way of living out one's life. Um, doing the truth um, is something that John is um, in, uh, underlining here for us. Any other thoughts before I go on? We're going to go on to verses 7. Okay, let's go. Um, does someone want to read this that can see it? This is harder. The, the vision tests are just going to get crazy. <laughs> now, can you read the bottom one? Anybody volunteer to read it? Who can? I will always read it. Okay, go ahead, Shannon. Thank you. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Anybody notice anything, um, any of the themes repeated here in this passage? We hear about commandments again. We hear about our brothers. If you were here last week, we talked about light. Remember at the very beginning of the letter, there is language about light and darkness and the dichotomy between light and darkness. And light um, is associated with truth and love and life and darkness associated with lies and, um, and hatred and death. And we're going to continue to see that dichotomy underlined. But here, I love that um, John, first and foremost, is addressing them as beloved. 
Yes, they're beloved of John, but even more than that, they're beloved of God. And we're going to talk about that in another minute. But um, he is talking about this commandment that he is writing. I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you heard, had, had from the beginning. From the beginning, remember, is this phrase that John has been using to point out that, um, that this message is from the very beginning. From um, And Jesus is the one who existed before the beginning of all creation. He was getting at that at the very beginning of his letter. And he's getting at this commandment that is not new but old. And yet it is new. And yet it's old. And it's new and it's old. Um, and this new old commandment, uh, John is pointing towards, of course, the Ten Commandments. Um, and we all know, I think, the Ten Commandments. You can find them in Exodus 20. And one of the interesting things about the Ten Commandments, there are so many things to be said, but one thing that I find so fascinating is that um, the first the first four, or some could argue the first um, five even, involve a vertical component, uh, involve relationship with God directly. How then shall we live in relationship with God? Well, we shall have no other gods before God. We shall not make ourselves a carved image to worship it. We will not take the name of the Lord our God in vain. We will remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. One, two, three, four. Those are all vertical responses to God. And then there's the sense in which that vertical holiness also plays itself out in horizontal relationships. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet. Well, these horizontal, um, vertical and then horizontal components, we also hear them um, in the way Jesus summarizes the law. Now, one of the Pharisees approaches Jesus, and they're trying to test him. And this is in Matthew 22. And when they try to test him, they ask him this question. Oh, we're really going to get him now. This uh, lawyer says, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? How can you choose just one? And yet Jesus um, reinvents the question, right? He says two, but he's going to tell which one is first and most important. And so Jesus responds, and how wonderful this is going to sound familiar because we say this every time we have Holy Communion together in worship. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And that lawyer is silenced. <laughs> He's, he says, you have answered well. You've done well by answering in this way. Jesus here is quoting Deuteronomy 6.5 um, and then also Leviticus 19.18. There is that vertical component, loving God first and foremost. And that love then uh, it spills out horizontally into relationship with one another. These are um, this is a summary of the old commandments, the commandments that they had from the beginning of um, of the witness of God through the Old Testament. Well, Jesus in John's Gospel, we find out Jesus is there in the upper room in John chapter 13, and he has um, he has just got down on his hands and knees to wash the feet of the disciples. And <laughs> Excuse me. And after that, he tells them, a new commandment I give, you, I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Jesus has just shown them what love looks like. Love looks like um, service, like the lowliest kind of service. Love involves sacrifice, a great uh, sacrifice of ourselves, of our, of our pride, um, of our own desires. 
And Jesus has demonstrated that not just by getting down on his hands and knees and washing the feet of his disciples who were about to betray and deny and abandon him, but he also would demonstrate that love, of course, by the next day going to the cross, um, taking the sins of the world upon him um, and climbing to Calvary and bearing them on the cross um, and, and dying for the sake of, of the whole world. So Jesus here is giving a new commandment, and it is literally this that John is referring back to. And yet those other commandments, the Old Testament commandments, inform this, um, both uh, the Ten Commandments and then Jesus' summary of them. Well, moving on, any thoughts about that? Um, the commandments, the new Old Commandments, and we're going to move on to um, Chapter 3. We're going to skip through um, chapter 2, we'll look at that again next week and the week after that when we look at, um, next week we'll look at what it means to be born of God as children of God. And the week after that we'll look at victory, um, what it looks like to overcome the evil one. Um, and John talks a lot about both of those things in this letter. The only thing that up Please. a lot, I never yeah. before about it being a new commandment to love one another. Yes. But it really kind of is. It and really is. Of the tent. Right. And what you said was his sacrificial love and the way he treated the poor and all that. Yes. That's not captured. I mean, once you don't kill somebody or yes. their wife, you're okay. Jesus takes it further. Yeah. And so it really is a new commandment. Yeah. I never thought about that. Thank before. you for saying that. Jesus really does. I'm just going to say it a little louder so everyone else can hear it because that was so helpful. Jesus really does take that second, uh, the second half of the Ten Commandments, and he yeah. is making it new. And one of the ways he makes it new, I would say, is that he is generalizing it. It's a lot harder to say, I got this worm, yes. if it's generalized. If it, you know, if it's like, well, don't kill anyone, okay, we're doing good. Yeah. Or you know, if it's, if it's a more generalized commandment or more specific commandment, yeah. we can check it off our list and say, I've done good. <laughs> but Jesus, by generalizing it, is convicting us. When, when, the, when the ideal is no longer just don't do these things, but rather do this, live your whole life uh, selflessly out of love for other people then then I, you know I, I, yeah, I, I see now what a sinner I am I see now that I have not lived this way thank you for pointing that out it's meant to convict us and that's where um, uh, going on uh, John is going to talk more about this and John talks about um, excuse me in chapter 3 John's going to talk about what this love for one another looks like so um, here's our test. Can anyone read First uh, John 3, verses 11 through 15? Anyone want to take a stab at it? All right. Thank you, Doug. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Do you hear that? Not only did he talk about the old commandment, thou shalt not murder, and talking about Cain, of course, who murdered his brother Abel. You know, the original fratricide is right there. Even um, Matt alluded to it in his sermon, if you heard that, that Eve gave birth to Cain, and it was thought, maybe this is the one, maybe this is the one through whom God will restore all things. And sure enough, no way. <laughs> um, he not only sins, but his sin is more egregious than anything that could have been imagined. Um, 
Cain kills his own brother Abel. And so John is um, likening anger to that murder of one's brother. And it seems a little bit harsh, and yet when we look at the Gospels, Jesus has made that same connection. And John is probably going off of Jesus' connection. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. That is a hard word. Just like Jesus is generalizing of the commandments, making them new in loving sacrificially, loving our brothers sacrificially, Jesus is also here internalizing the commandments. Um, even if we are angry, uh, we can't even drive anywhere. Forget about it. Um, even that smallest bit of anger is a sign of, um, of what anger will lead to, which is ultimately uh, murder. You can't even drive anywhere without sinning. Yeah, exactly. Sorry. This should be the tagline on this class. You can't even drive anywhere without sinning. Um, well, that's where also this language of brother, brother and sister, isn't it so interesting that sometimes the people that we're closest to are the hardest ones to love? <laughs> Um, I just think about all of the, um, some of the family feuds that have gone on that I just know about. Not in this church, of course, but, um, but I think also of, um, of the Middle East. When you think about the Middle East, it's really a family squabble. Um, the, the Jews and Arabs, their brothers, they go back to Ishmael. They go back to Ishmael and Isaac. If you think about that, historically, they're brothers. It's a family squabble in the Middle East. Um, it is harder to love those who are closest, closest to us. Um, it's a lot easier to say, um, I'm going to love that person over there, but forget about my own spouse. Or I'm going to love that person over there, but I can't forgive my mother for what she did. Um, so um, they know what they're doing. Jesus knows what he's doing when using this language of brother. Um, Okay, moving on, just because I've given myself too much to get through today, um, but just to wrap up, keep going with love, because John is going to say even more about love. He's going to say what love looks like here. He said what it doesn't look like um, in talking against hatred and anger and murder, but now he's going to talk about positively about loving indeed and in truth. Um, can someone read those three verses, short three verses? It's bigger this time. Anybody want to take a stab at it? Great. Thanks, Brad. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Do you hear that? Um, this Again, talking about the epitome of love is laying down one's life for one's brothers. And we hear about Jesus laying down his life for us. And Paul is so clear in Romans to say that he lays down his life not for good people, but he lays down his life for us as sinners um, before being made good by his love for us. Um, He sacrifices himself um, to the uttermost for his own enemies. Um, And sometimes our own brothers are our enemies. But there is that thought of um, laying down that self-sacrifice, which we see most epitomized in the cross of Jesus Christ. And John goes on to talk about, very practically speaking, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? 
this is very convicting. Also, like the anger piece. Um, there's something to be said about Christian love, and I think it's very easy to allow this, um, this commandment to convict us, and every one of us is guilty in it. And yet, I think when we look corporately at the church, and historically at the church of Christ, we can take courage from the work of the Holy Spirit, not only um, throughout the church, throughout the ages, but also trusting that God will work this work within our hearts. It is up to him to work this work, and he is so good at doing that. Um, and so I think of this because there's this wonderful book that I've read called The Rise of Christianity, how the obscure marginal Jesus movement became the dominant religious force in the Western world in a few centuries. This is kind of an obscure book, but it's written by a a sociologist who's very well known for his methods being uh, great in terms of the way the secular academy looks at, um, at running statistics. And so he's very good at that. He happens to be a Christian, so he does have a dog in the fight, um, but he's, his methods are so good that he's not discredited by the secular universities. And so what he says is he looks at all of these um, historical documents suggesting how many numbers of people were converted over the first few centuries of Christianity, and he talks about a few factors that he sees playing a part in drawing people to Christianity. And essentially what he's talking about is the way Christians lived their lives was so um, desirable that many people came and wanted to come to Christ because they had been ministered to by um, other individual Christians or more importantly by the body of Christ. And so what he talks about is how women played a huge role in the growth of the early church because suddenly women of all classes were treated as um, as equals to men um, by Christians um, because of the Holy Spirit being poured out upon both men and women alike um, because of the curse being reversed and so for Christian or for women especially within Greco-Roman culture where they were treated so poorly this was a step up um, this was an attractive philosophy in, in fact they were loved so well that they thought that's got to be true. <laughs> if I've been loved this well, uh, uh, th- there must be some truth about this religion. We see it too in infanticide in the ancient world. It was so common, it's so tragic, but it was so common to throw away unwanted children. Literally to throw away unwanted children. There have been archaeological studies that have found um, huge numbers of infant skeletons in the sewer system in ancient cities because those children were unwanted and they were usually, um, based on the records, I know, I'm sorry, they were day old or very um, week old infants, very young infants, and most of them probably were girls. A lot of the girls were um, unwanted because it was, um, as we know, um, why they would be unwanted. We see that even in modern China. And so what happened was a lot of these children that were left out, exposed to the elements, Christians would come along as a Christian community. They would take the baby. They would raise the baby. And suddenly they would increase their numbers um, because this child had a family. (laughs) It was loved so well. Um, We see it also in epidemics. There are so many epidemics in the ancient world. Just think about the the plague all throughout the Middle Ages, but even worse. Um, And so there are all these epidemics. And one of the things that we know for sure is that Christians would go out, um, if there was someone in your household, if you were not a Christian and there was someone in your household who got the sickness, um, they were, you were literally abandoned by your family. Your husband, your wife would abandon you. Your parents would abandon you if you were a child. That was it because it was so deadly and there was no way to treat it. Well, what happened was that Christians came along and started tending the sick, not only their own sick and their own families, but tending other people's sick. 
And Christians were the ones who began to develop immunity to the sickness. So in terms of those who were tending the sick in the long run, some of them died in the short term, but in the long run, many of them lived on. And then when they nursed people, if people got nursed back to health, they sure as heck were not going to go back to their family that had abandoned them. They were going to join God's family, and they were going to be a part of the Christian faith. Of the application of the love that yeah. Jesus and God are teaching us. Yeah. And, the, and you know, our insatiable, innate desire to be loved. Yes. And, and you know, the Christian community, uh, and yeah. eventually Christ, you know, being being that need that we are all seeking constantly. Is, yeah. So Thank you for that, Brad. Yeah. It's exciting. It's exciting to hear that history because I feel like sometimes we're bad at it. Um, and I even recently heard of a church. There were, and I tried to find where I'd found this reference, so forgive me for not citing my sources. But there's a, I heard of a church, a Christian church in the U.S., that had such a heart for um, orphaned children that they decided as a whole church, they were probably a big church like the Advent. I think it was like every family or most families in the church went out and prepared their homes for adoption, did all the papers, did all the work adopted all of the children and there weren't any more children in the foster system for the whole county because that one mega church had adopted all of the children in need of a home and in need of a family you better believe that those children are going to understand god's love as a result of that and they're going to be raised as christians so i hope you know while it's convicting this commandment it's also exciting to see what god does in and through us and that's god's own work um and so um one of the things about this we can just keep going, but I'm just going to, I just have two more minutes, so forgive me. But looking at this passage in 1 John 4, you are going to want to go home and read all of 1 John 4. And actually, I didn't say this at the end of last week, but I actually encourage people to sit. Because John speaks so symphonically in such a spiral way, I encourage people to sit and read the whole letter all at once. If you have 20 minutes, you can get through this. And to read it because you'll see so many of the themes brought around. And so I'd encourage you to read it. If you're going to come back and come, maybe I've um, just, you know, deterred you away from coming back next week. But if you do plan on it, I'd encourage you to read the whole letter between now and then. Because you'll see this theme of love. And First John 4 has some of my favorite verses about God's love. Beloved, those of us who have been loved by God, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. Do you hear how the love is not just Jesus' love for us, but God the Father's love for us, that he would send his only Son into the world to live and to die for us? In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Do you hear that vertical component? We might think, well, I've got to love God. I've got to love God. I've got to love God. When we find that we're not loving God, first, that means we need to stop and once again receive his grace and mercy, his love for us. And so when that, in that vertical component, I always think of it as a one-way downward direction. First and foremost, we receive before we go out and give in return. And so then we give back. We return God's love out of gratitude for his love for us. We return it back vertically, and then by God's grace, it spills out into the way we live our lives horizontally. No one has ever seen God. Uh, if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. I just, I know I don't really have the time, but I'm going to go for it. If you need to leave, go ahead and leave. On um, this last um, few verses in John's, uh, in John's letter, chapter 4, 
There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Do you hear that again? The return of love for God is the response because of his love for us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Do you hear this reprise, reprise on love? It's, he's reiterating what he said before, but do you see the new information here in verse, verse 18? There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. This idea of fearing the Lord is something all throughout Scripture. It's a beautiful theme all throughout Scripture. I'd encourage you um, to, to look it up. This fear um, is an awe at God's holiness and his righteousness. And it's found all throughout Scripture as a good thing. It's a way of honoring God, of, of worshiping God, of living righteously before God. Those who live righteously before God fear him. And yet the fear of judgment is no longer there for us because in Christ Jesus, he has taken on our punishment for our lack of love, for our sinfulness. Jesus has borne the penalty even to the point of death. And so that's what gives us the courage to stand before God and then to take risks in loving others because we know that we've been accepted and received despite ourselves, even when we've been unloving and unlovely. Uh, so with that in mind, yes, please, sure. C.I. Scofield says that um, yeah. fear of God is reverential trust. Which is what you're saying. Oh God, it's not. Yeah. My God, He's gonna smite me. Yes. Yeah. And the in the my God, He's going to smite me is this kind of fear right. that's exactly. been cast out. Right. And so we have the other fear. We have this right. reverential awe. And you said yeah. trust. What did yeah. you say? Yeah, reverential trust. Reverential trust. Thank you for that. It's worth repeating. That reverential trust again allows us to live freely in God's presence and to risk in our relationships with others and loving them. So let's pray and then feel free to stay back if you have any other questions. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you and praise you for your great love for us, your love that um, went to the cross. And we thank you, Lord, that your love is not just your own, but it belongs to the fathers. It's fully Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who love us. And so, Lord, even as we are bathed in that love, even as we receive once again your love for us, we ask that you would free us, free us from our fears, fear of what the world thinks, fear of, um, of what would happen with our bank accounts if we loved radically, fear of all of the things that could grip us. Would you, because of your love for us, free us? And would you um, engender within us that same kind of love that you have for us? Would you cause us to be your hands and feet to a hurting and broken world? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.